What's up, everybody? This is Marty Friedman, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another episode of Focus on Metal as we present Kerrang! number seven. That's right, this week we continue in our conversation with Sylvie Simmons. Those of you who are able to catch Kerrang! number six know that Sylvie is full of some great stories about her days with Kerrang! And if you haven't caught that one, go over to uh, focusonmetal.net or up to iTunes and check out Kerrang! number six. But this week, we bring Sylvie back for more great stories about her days as the L.A. correspondent for Kerrang! magazine. If you thought that the first one had some great stuff, this one may be even better. So knowing that Sylvie's got some great stuff for us this week, I think that I should probably just uh, shut the hell up, get out of the way, and uh, give you... Richie's talk with Sylvie as we present Kerrang! Number 7 with Sylvie Simmons. It was great talking to you the last time, and there were certain things that you, we kind of touched on but never really got into it. And One of the mm-hmm. ones that I wanted to ask you about was um, your, the venues you went to see the bands in L.A. Was there any particular favorite ones you liked? Well, the ones I seemed to go to most, especially for the kind of heavy rock, were... There was um, well, Gazzari's, which was a kind of sleaze joint. I think it was G-A-Z-Z-A-R-R-I, but double-check that online. Gazzari's was right near the Roxy. It was on the Sunset Strip near the Roxy and Whiskey. All of them were in, within a stagger of each other. And this was a time when the men were hair, wearing high heels and the women. So, uh, you know, it was good to have sort of easy staggering places. Gazzari's, I believe, was where Van Halen, first played their shows at these kind of strip joints or, you know, women's wrestling things. I've no idea. Yeah. But uh, I didn't see them for the first time there. I saw them when I was on on a bus touring with Black Sabbath in 1978 and Van Halen were opening and kicking their butts. Um, so I used to go to Gazari sometimes, the whiskey all the time. Whiskey a go-go. That was probably the best place to see it. Probably not the best for the bands because the dressing room was pretty disgusting. At the top of the stairs, it was hardly room to fit everybody all in. But that was a very cool club. It was a, a club that had a kind of area at the front where you could stand, and there were sort of seats at the back, but it was still a small venue. And it's named Whiskey a Go-Go. It used to have go-go dancers there back in the days when um, Buffalo Springfield and Neil Young's band with Stephen Stills were playing there. Didn't see that either, unfortunately. It was before my time. Mm-hmm. And the other place I'd see a lot of bands, that was the Starwood. Yeah. The Starwood was on Santa Monica Boulevard, and um, I don't even know, if, I don't think it's there anymore. I mean, that's now a very swish part of town and a kind of very big kind of uh, day street. So um, that was another place, and the other places I'd go to were mostly for kind of punk bands in the early days, which were things like Madame Wong's, and that was like a Chinese restaurant turned punk place downtown that was good and sleazy, so... But, and the Roxy was usually the place just up the road from the whiskey between Gazzari's and the whiskey was the Roxy, which was fantastic. It was right next to the Rainbow, Rainbow Bar and Grill, which was Lemmy of Motorhead's home from home, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. And the Roxy was a good venue. It was like the whiskey, really, with the sit-down areas, except it was kind of much swisher. 
And so a lot of bands would be put on there by their record companies. So sometimes you saw heavy rock bands there, but I remember seeing Prince for the first time there. All sorts of wonderful shows. Well, All of them very small and very clubby. Now, back in those days, you know, music journalists were few and far between, and and we had a kind of fairly important role in breaking bands because this was pre-MTV and pre you know, kind of newspapers covering new bands like they do now. So we could get them a record deal almost by putting them in, like I pretty much did with Motley Crue. And yeah. I got them a sound piece, and actually the record label had got in touch with me, so I know it happened that way. That yeah, they yeah. liked the piece and the album and everything. So those were my, my key joint, joints to go to. And uh, we used to get free tabs then. You know, they give us a tab where we could run up, you know, just all sorts of bills for drinks no, I don't remember ever paying for them myself. Nice. <laughs> I guess it was the record company or the poor band had it on their, you know, payback list for a long, long yeah. time. Now, what about arena shows? Like, I know about the Long Beach Arena. Was there anywhere Long Beach else? Arena was one, but that was quite a way out of town. The Forum was the big one in L.A., the L.A. Forum. Okay. And that's, that's and where, that all the... where I saw an absolute host of big bands. It was going down to the Forum on a regular basis was in a pretty dodgy part of town back then and, you know, you kind of didn't really stop on the way for a hamburger. You just got there, parked in the parking lot and came back. And then it was a funny place in yep. those days. What about outdoor shows? Was there any, any venue in L.A. that had big festivals or outdoor shows? You'd think that they would, wouldn't you? I mean, as far as the one I can remember is the Hollywood Bowl, but that was an absolutely gorgeous venue, but it was a place where... You know, it, it tended not to, it tended to be Tom Petty would play there, you know, but it wouldn't be the sort of grungy metal bands, at least not in my day. Probably yeah. they've changed that now a little bit, especially yeah. with the ones that have stuck around. And other outdoor things, we used to have the festivals. I remember the Us Festival. You went to that, yeah? Oh, yes, I did. I went to the first Us Festival. I know I did a review on it. So. Okay. I wanted to ask you about I was going to ask you, did you go? Was that the one with... Judas Priest and Quiet Riot and Motley Crue and the 300,000. You know, I don't remember if they were on there. The only one I remember being there was Ozzy. And uh, I remember I was backstage and they had this kind of backstage area with a little low picket fence to make it look like the countryside. And, and they had these, um, unless I'm completely on acid, I seem to remember that they had these kind of fake sheep, you know, this sort of <laughs> toy sheep. And I remember... Ozzy running towards me to say hi because, you know, we'd been on the road together and I'd done his first uh, solo um, interview as well. That was the sounds, you know, yeah. after he'd broken up with, or been broken up by Sadness. And I remember he came over and halfway stopped at the sheep and pretended to be shagging it from behind just to <laughs> be amusing. <laughs> so I, I kind of remember that. I seem to remember lots of cocaine was going around. Yeah. Aerosmith, I seem to think, was on that one, but that may have been another bus festival. I would have to go through, you know, a huge amount of old. Yeah. Now, you know, where, did, where did they hold that? Fine. Where did they what? Where did they hold, hold it? it? You know, I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> I mean, I can cheat by looking that up on, online right now, yeah. but I remember it was a little drive, you know, but I don't remember anything else. These things are kind of like really 40 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would, a lot of my memory is only if I've done a review of it and it'll tell me where it was. Yeah. Now, what you about know? what about the other one that, that I remember being on? Now, let me find this right oh. now. I can see where it was. Sure. Okay, here we were. It was in San Bernardino, California. All right. There you go. I knew it was a long drive. Yeah. 
Yeah, what about the day on the green? Did you ever make it up to those? Oh, yeah, it was the day on the green. My main memory of that was interviewing Blue Oyster Okay. And to my um, shame and chagrin, I was so stoned that I was asking him the same question, him him being the lead singer. Eric, whatever his name, Bloom, was it? Eric Bloom, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I did get it right. So uh, I remember talking to Eric Bloom of Blue Oyster Cult. I'd always been a big fan of their music, and they had this kind of very different attitude to the L.A. bands. They were real New Yorkers. You Kind of deep down, you could tell they were a bit bookish and intellectual, as was their manager. Um, and so uh, I kind of, uh, I was hanging with them, and I was really stoned when I did that interview. And I remember I kept asking Eric the same question over and over again, and he kept answering it the same way over and over again. And to my chagrin, I said to him, you're really boring. Because <laughs> I kept thinking I was asking him these questions, and you know, that's my main memory of day on the green. Again, I reviewed it, but what I did and who was on the bill, I, you know, yeah, I couldn't tell you without a prompt. Yeah. If you needed me to, I can sort of pick through reviews. I don't really file those so easily. You know, they're kind of in different spots. Whereas, yeah, you know, if you wanted to know about features, those are all in. In alphabetical order and filing cabinets, yeah. millions o- of them. <laughs> now, the other thing I do remember reading in books: um, a lot of bands put flyers up on the poles in at, mm-hmm. in where they were playing. Do you remember that the, the poles? You oh yeah, the it was at the poles along Sunset Strip were um, basically full of staples. They were wooden poles, you know. They weren't those kind of concrete light poles and stuff. They were almost like trees without any limbs and leaves on that somebody had chucked into the ground. And so basically it was flyer after flyer, and if they got pulled down, the staples would be left behind. So it was like little glitter trees, and there'd be tons of them. Basically, they were just like Xeroxed single pages of, of white paper with black on them. There wasn't anything very grand or, or postery, and it seems like half the bands had a double X in their name, you know. Yeah. And that was it. That was especially in, in the glam metal years that uh, everybody would be walking along that strip, as I say, between the Rainbow Bar and Grill, the Roxy, Gazaris, and Whiskey. And all the, every one of those lampposts would be sort of covered with staples. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about MTV. Because mm-hmm. MTV started in the early 80s, and you were in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, which is like the entertainment capital of the world. When you yeah. saw that for the first time and when it started to take off, did, did you did you ever get an inkling that it would, be, it would actually be as big as it became? I could say I did in the beginning, because there weren't really a huge number of videos made, or at least not what they wanted to show on TV. I seem to remember one of the great things was that they showed a Michael Jackson video, I think because... Clearly, his record company had the money for him to have one, and it things were kind of racist in uh, in LA back then. It was maybe not deliberate; it was just the way things were set up. You know, it seemed to be that neighborhoods tended to be, you know, either Mexican or they'd be white or they would be black, you know, African American, and that was that was the way of things. I remember being very shocked about that when I came from London, which was much more diverse, you know, your neighbours were all sorts of backgrounds. And so, uh, yeah, I kind of do remember that it was a bit of a surprise to see Michael Jackson on what seemed to be like a kind of a rock show. But once it did start to take off, it, the effect that it had was enormous. In, in my kind of little rock historian mind, there seemed to have been two major, major effects on the music business. 
in my decades as a writer. And the first of those was at the time of MTV. It was like suddenly everything became a bit more bright and glossy. And this was around the time that they were introducing CDs and LPs were gradually being pushed to the background. And of course, you know, they came in little jewel cases and they were shiny and nice and indestructible. You know, you couldn't love them to death like you could with regular vinyl where you just like gore it, you know, from playing it over and over again and have to buy another one. So that was sort of like the start of the glossifying of rock music and the inkies that I used to write for kind of gave way to the, you know, the glossy magazines and Kerrang! when it came in was one of the first of those. I remember Q starting. All of these magazines that had been just like the, you know, the sort of almost like giant fanzines meets local newspapers that came out every week suddenly now had to be glossy. And I think that that kind of shiny quality started coming into production too. You know, there'll be sort of various producers who always sounded like they'd put cling film over the music. You know, somehow it was all a bit too too brash and in your face. This was a huge change in the business. And I guess the next biggest one came, of course, with Napster and then the digitalization of music where, you know, suddenly the whole business pretty much collapsed around them and only the biggest names were able to survive. Yeah, do you remember... uh when MTV started the break that you could sense with a lot of the bands that you were covering that they definitely changed their image to accommodate that more than their music. You know, the music sort of became a little bit more secondary and the image became more primary. Did, did you ever get a sense of that at all when you were in? I did, especially with the metal bands. And uh, um, just to give you one example of that, Motley Crue, the first time I saw them, I sometimes remember it was at the Starwood, but people tell me it was a whiskey, so I could be wrong in that. But I remember going past the club and seeing a kind of line of kids, maybe 16 or 17 people waiting outside. And I was looking up and thinking, who's on? You know, people are here early and lining up. And what all of these kids were kind of dressed like they were in the New York Dolls. They all had tight pants and scarves and hair kind of looking like exploding Christmas trees. And they were standing there in their high heels. That was the guys all outside the club that I thought was a Starwood and might have been the whiskey. And so I went inside and uh, and I saw one of the very early Motley Crue concerts before they put out their leather record self-release mm-hmm. album, Too Fast for Love. And uh, it was very ramshackle kind of staging, you know, it was kind of cheap and cheerful. And I just thought, no, this band has got it. They're going to go somewhere. And I spoke to Sounds and they let me do a double page on them. It was a very, very interesting thing to do. But then when when kind of MTV came along, the next thing, you know, they're on Electro Records. They've got some Slash guy. Wasn't it the guy who uh, who uh, was Queen's producer who who took for their production? Um, for Motley Crue? Would it be yeah. Tom Werman? No, not Tom Werman. Tom Werman was the guy who, who sanitized everything. I can't remember his name. Oh, but, uh, anyway. Tom, like Thomas Baker. That's exactly yeah. who it was. Roy Thomas Baker was their producer, I believe, and they were they were kind of cleaned up in, in their sound. And the videos that they had were all of the kind of, you know, the sort of the standard rock video of that time was mostly kind of like some ridiculously sized sort of long-legged blonde with, you know, sort of made-by-man boobs of enormous size and often splashing around in a jacuzzi. 
with the band, you know, who were looking mm-hmm. cool. And so there are all sorts of variations on this where kind of would-be models were there, and, you know, kind of in those videos. And to me, I think it kind of cheapened a lot of what was going on. It cleaned it up a bit too much in the sense of the music. So in a way, it didn't clean up the business. It seemed like somehow with all this... At this time, there was a lot more of the nasty drugs going on as opposed to the open your mind, have fun drugs. It was more of the kind of, you know, coach yourself out and be a dickhead drugs. Yeah. And uh, I think that that was a bit of the downfall of a lot of the bands in the 80s. Yeah. Now, there's some other bands, that LA bands, that I never got to ask you about the first time I talked to you. Um, sure. Did you ever interview any of the guys in RAF? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, would you, would you have interviewed Robin Crosby? Oh, yeah. Okay, but did you? How did you get on with those guys? Like, were they were they pretty? Well, I liked them. I got on with on with them very well in the beginning, and uh, they would um, at that time because I was with Sounds Anchoring, I was in that position where they would come to me. You know, you would sit there in your little kind of Game of Thrones kind of kingdom, and they would come and sort of pay respects and bend the knee and kiss the hand. Not literally, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Actually, some of them did, to be quite honest. And so you got to know them all. And so, yeah, I knew them very, very well. And in fact, you suggested when they were doing their first album that my boyfriend and later husband at that time, Liam Sternberg, Liam Sternberg should produce it. And so they worked with Liam on that. And then they got a big deal and sort of left him in the lurch and didn't pay him for that work. Wow. Typical band activities. So I kind of wasn't feeling that endeared to them but I felt really bad for Robin. Robin used to share an apartment with Nikki Six and those two were hanging out together all the time. I'd be at some club or other and the two of them were coming together almost glued, you know, side by side and they were really good company, both of them. Yeah. I liked them a lot. I wasn't personally fond of the singer at that band. Stephen Piercy. Yeah, not really. He was you know, he liked himself a little bit too much. He had Lee Singer's yeah. disease, did he? <laughs> yeah, right, LSD. Yeah. Uh, I believe that it was named by David Lee Roth. Not to- no, actually, Eddie Van Halen talking about David Lee Roth. Yeah. That's the first time I ever heard it, that David yeah. suffered from LSD. Yeah, another band I want to... Oh, I'm fond of David, so I won't say a bad word again. Yeah, I love David Lee Roth. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, uh, did you ever inter- interview the guys in Dokken? Oh, yeah. Don Dokken, there was always that rumor that he was wearing a wig. And I remember he made me tug his hair once. And I was like, <laughs> as big a tug as I could. You know, he wanted these rumors denied that he was he was a man of no hair. Yeah. And so, you know, two pays on. But I, I do remember that. Yeah, Don Dokken, that, 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 those guys were around a lot. Great White was around a lot. Great White was managed by the same guy who went on to manage... Guns and Roses, and how I got to know him, that was Alan Niven, yeah. was that initially um, he had a little label that put out uh, the first album by um, by Motley Crue on the recommendation of reading them, My Peace in Cream. Okay. And somebody who worked for him, uh, Tom Zutout, uh, went on to go to Electra, and that's how they got their Electra deal. Yeah. They being Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. Did you talk to George Lynch at all? Did you interview him? Who, sorry? George Lynch, the docking guitarist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed, like, all of those guys in, in every way, shape, and form because I wasn't just working for Kurang. I had a, a column in a Japanese magazine called Music Life, and they were nuts about all of the metal bands. 
Yeah. And also later for another Japanese magazine called Rock in F. I don't know why it was in F and not in G or E, but it was called Rock in F. And they liked to talk to all the guitar players. Okay. So, yeah, I was, you know, basically any of those were there. But tell you what, I just remember something. The sheep were at the day at the Green Festival, the fake sheep. Okay. That wasn't the Us Festival. Okay. I think the Us Festival is when I sported coke off of Stephen Tyler's nose in a photo of Stephen Tyler. <laughs> because it was actually given to me by Stephen Tyler. Oh, nice. He said, this is my nostril and this is yours, were his very words. But they were both his. It was a photo. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my Us Festival memory. And Stay on the Green was definitely Aussie the Sheep. Okay, Aussie and the Sheep. Yeah. So I'm sure if you look up Stay on the Green, kind of whatever. And I don't even remember where that was either. Yeah. A long time ago and far away. Yeah. So the other, the other, one of the other bands that they, they were massive in the early 80s was uh, Quite Riot. Um, did you ever get yeah. to in- interview Kevin DeBro at all? Oh, yeah. Because he, mm-hmm. he got in trouble because he said things that without thinking. Did you ever get stuff off him and think, well, would you really want to retract that or something like that? Do you remember anything I think, like that? you know, when I was first a journalist, I didn't really have the kind of, I don't, I wouldn't say ethics because I always tried to tell the truth and if anything I was kind of probably more positive towards them than, than negative to all of them really. I was just, you know, I just loved the music and I was greatly enthusiastic. But I think that probably only came with me in a, when I've been a journalist maybe about eight or ten years so that would be kind of medium late 80s you know I started in 77 and so they were at those times where you kind of got to know the bands and hang with them a lot and during the interview they might just tell you too much and mm-hmm. so you'd say like are you sure you want like the whole of Great Britain or whatever to, to hear this you know so and they would go like mm, maybe I should you know cut it down a little bit and usually the times that I did that were mostly if it was involving, like, family, their families or their wives, you know. Yeah. It was like if they'd said something about, or another band member's wife, you thought, do you really kind of want to break your band up? <laughs> no, sorry. I thought, I was say to me, I thought I was talking to you as a person and not as a journalist. Wow. And I said, good, now talk to me as a journalist. Did you ever have a PR person or a label person in the room run over and stop the interview because of something that uh, one, of the, one of the people said to you? Uh, I can't remember a PR doing it to my face. I was stopped by PRs from talking to certain people. One of them was Ronnie James Dio. Okay. And and that was because I had um, mentioned him being diminutive. And, you know, when you write for Kerrang or Sounds, they've got a kind of sense of humor. You know, there's that slight sort of irreverence that's in there. And I should say that Ronnie Dio was actually, I think, taller than me. I'm five foot two, and I think he was slightly taller. So I'm not exactly a giant in the world. Yeah. And he got really upset about it. And I remember, I guess, I'm sort of remembering actually that Tony Iommi had told me that, you know, when Ronnie James Dio joined the band, joined Sabbath, they used to put like a, they used to put his microphone up really, really high just to piss him off. And <laughs> <laughs> when he complained about it, somebody would bring a little kind of box for him to stand on. So it was just typical British sarcasm that he as an American didn't really appreciate. Yeah. And so he kind of had me, um, I guess it was told off. And then the next time that I was writing about him, I'd say something like, you know, you can't call him diminutive or small or petite or, you know. I said, so I'll call him a white knight on a Shetland pony. 
And, you know, that was a kind of like thing you did back then, arrogant music journalist getting the last laugh, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that was it. Yeah, well, he had nice interviews in the past because he was a very articulate and smart man. Yeah, yeah. He's missed by a lot of people. He was a, a great singer. He was a nice guy too. I'm sorry I offended him in a way, but I mean, it was just no sense of humour. I'm just looking this up right now that Ozzy Osbourne was at the Bay in the Green, 1981, July the 4th, 1981. All I need now is to find the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll know that my memory isn't entirely useless. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Some, someone sent me a message today when I said I was going to be talking to you again. And uh-huh. they wanted, one of the bands that a lot of the writers keep bringing up, and I don't ask about them, is mm-hmm. UFO. And they, oh, yeah. Yeah, and they, they wanted me to ask, did you have any, inter, did you ever do any interviews that go on the road with UFO? Because they were party animals back in the day. I never went on the road with them as such, but I went traveling to meet them in all sorts of places, yeah. All sorts of places. Yeah. So, yeah, UFO, I, I must have, you know, let me have a look right now in my my little chamber of horrors. There can't be much <laughs> under you, I imagine. So I could probably find a huge amount of interviews with them. So, yeah. Okay, here's the U file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here they are. Lots and lots of UFOs. Yeah. That's good. Okay. You know Pete Ways just brought out his autobiography, so I'm sure there's some tales in that. Pete was lovely. I mean, I think my most... I remember uh, actually back in uh, Britain, I went to Wales where they were doing a, making a new album. Was it at Rockford or Rock something studio? I've forgotten. Rockfield? Yeah, Rockfield. There you are. And so he was there and we were all hanging out. And, and uh, it was really sweet. And at one point he said, I think it was... I don't remember which of his ex-wives it was or something, but it said that she she told him he couldn't go back on the road. That was it. It was done. It's too much. He needed to stay home. So he said to me that he'd gone outside in like his pajamas and <laughs> pajama bottoms and slippers. I said, I'm just walking down to the corner to get some milk. And then his mates from UFO like shoved him into the car and off they went. And when he got back, the marriage was over. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> yes, I've got a thousand interviews here with Pete Way. Love him, love him, love him. He was very ill for a while. Yeah, that's not. right. That's right. Yeah, hopefully he's back I'm on the so glad he's back. Yeah, I loved that band. Yeah, and Phil Marg, I suppose you would have interviewed him as well. Oh yeah, yeah. he was a bit angrier. There was something about him. There was a little little anger in him. Yeah. So so like. One of the things that I, I, have, don't, I haven't really asked any of the rest of the people I've been talking to yet was normally they were they were sent away with photographers, the same photographers a lot. But you're you were based in LA, so mm-hmm. what photographers would you go on the road with or, or do photo? You know, when you're doing interviews and photo shoots, was there one person think, in particular? I'm trying to think. When I went on the road, I don't believe I had a photographer with me. I'm pretty sure I didn't in any of those cases. Because otherwise, I mean, they'd have had to be in a bunk bed too, and I don't remember that, you know. Yeah. But um, the person I worked with most out in L.A. was a guy called Chris Walter, W-A-L-T-E-R. And Chris um, was a British photographer who had worked for a long time um, on his own with his own uh, his own photo agency called Photo Features. And he set up an L.A. office and, and then decided he liked living in L.A. better than London. So... As far as I know, he's still out there, Chris Water, and I'm mm-hmm. sure 
he would, you know, he's easily findable through Facebook, and I'm sure he'll speak to you. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever... He was a very good photographer, and, you know, he'd been taking pictures, like, since the Beatles. He was, um, oh. you know, really good. And when I did interviews, he invariably in L.A. would come along and, uh, and be my accompaniment, yeah, nice. my escort. Nice. Now, when the likes of Hart and Lita Ford and some of these women in rock started to become popular, Mm-hmm. Did Kerrang want you to interview them, or did you did you actually say to Jeff, I, "Look, I I'd better go and interview some of the women"? You know, how did that work? Like, is that something that you wanted to do? Well, one of the things that's interesting is that you know people kind of wonder what it was like for a young girl to be out there, kind yeah. of on her own, pretty much, because Chris wasn't always there to have my back. But to be out there on your own with these these kind of pretty wild boys sometimes. But the metal guys were really the most gentlemanly of the lot. I mean, chief gentleman, I think, in rock would be either Lenny of Motorhead or perhaps, you know, um, Robert Plant, but he's not really metal, that's just rock. So I found it was usually the new wave guys, the punk guys and the pop type guys, the sort of the, I'm not naming Duran Duran as one of those bands, but the kind of, those kind of bands from the 80s who tended to be pests, but they were pretty gentlemanly, the rock guys from England, yeah. you know. They'd be on tour and somehow they just treated you like a little sister half the time. Okay. A little sister that had to keep fetching them beer and making them tea, mind, but, <laughs> you know. So I didn't really feel, and, and Jeff Barton certainly was not at all sexist, you know. Yeah. I was out there, I was doing pretty much anything that was in L.A. that the others you know, if sometimes you'd, the record company would send somebody out from England, you know, and pay their fare, and, and they'd go on what we called a lig back then. They were on a lig. And so that would happen, but generally it was my turf. And so both sounds anchoring with whoever was editors at that time generally, you know, would expect me to interview Rod Stewart or Michael Jackson or the metal guys or whatever, you know, whoever it was. Yeah. So Jeff was... You never ever questioned anything or, or sort of told me off about what I was doing or demanded other things. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I remember doing it just because they were such big bands. I mean, Heart were big. I really enjoyed Anne Wilson's company. She was, she was cool. Very nice. Yeah, the only reason I'm asking the question this time is you mentioned the last time, um, I talked to you, you were talking to Anne Wilson and Stevie Nicks came up to you and said, yeah, we girls in rock have to stick together. Yeah, we together. have to stick together. So I, I, I want true. to ask you about, you know, talking to the other women in, in, in the bands that were out there, like, were they, like, thrilled that when you interviewed them, like, oh, wow, it's fantastic, it's a woman that's actually interviewing me? Well, it was certainly kind of different. I didn't necessarily, you know, think in those terms. I, I think I might mention before, I was brought up with only brothers, so it didn't occur to me that, you know, <laughs> it didn't really kind of occur to me that have, not having a penis was a weird thing and being a music journalist. So I just talked to all of them if I liked their music and even if I didn't, if I was commissioned to do it. But it could be quite fun having a gossip with the girls for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you moved back to the UK, was in, what was it, in 84, mm-hmm. Compare the music scene in the UK then to LA, was it like completely different? Well, before I get to that, I'll just get a bit more on the girls in rock thing. I yeah, did meet sure. the girls from the Runaways. 
and they they weren't friendly at all. I mean, I've actually spoken to Lisa recently. She had put her uh, memoir out a year ago, and I was asked to interview her on stage at a local venue, and she was perfectly nice. But back in those days, you know, they didn't really want to talk to another girl. You know, I guess the girls wouldn't be adoring them like the boys would, and and uh, Lisa was a toughie. John Jack was even tougher in my memory. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Sherry Curry was kind of sweet, but a little bit distant, you know, not really very engaged in the interview we did. Yeah. And I think it was only really Anne Wilson, more than her sister Nancy. Nancy was nice, but she tended to keep a lower profile then. And Stevie, who would be the, the ones who I could sit down and we'd have a really good natter. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But coming back to England, you asked. Coming back to England, I went back to England, and I guess it must have been the late summer of 84, 1984. So it was seven years after L.A., and I'd kind of a bit overdosed on L.A., not for its music by any means, but just the city and its endless sort of traffic jams and, and you know, everybody you'd meet who'd come over to your place to fix the, you know, the plumbing or something would tell you that they're an actor or a musician or something, you know. Mm-hmm. You kind of just have got a bit overdosed on on people who'd, who'd done too much coke, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I kind of really longed for real life and so I figured that London was real life and once I got back, actually, I'd been sort of ruined by L.A., so it was too real, you know. No yeah. sun. It was cold. Everything was expensive, you know. And so, so it, was a, it was a bit of a shock when I did come back. I actually came back initially to do stuff with sounds, and the editor at that time and I didn't get along. He was quite the opposite to, to Jeff Barton. His whole thing was he only really wanted me to interview women. Uh-huh. It was like, you know... You have a period, they have a period, you'll get along. And so I would never get any kind of really good things like I'd had in L.A. Mm-hmm. And so I ceremoniously walked out of sound and started doing more for Kurang. And by that time, I was using my own name in Kurang rather than Laura Canyon. Yeah, you must have had some bands in England when you interviewed them, like American bands, and they would have seen you and said, oh, you're back here now. Do you remember I'm even saying that to you? It's, yeah, there was a lot of that going on, but it was especially, again, with the metal bands, you know, the glam metal bands coming over. They were great to hang out with. But what had happened as well is that um, bands by that time, by the mid-80s to the late, to the, like, early 90s, they were no longer as accessible as they used to be, you know. They'd, in the past, you'd all hang out or you'd go backstage. There weren't, wasn't much security back then, you know. If you looked like you were meant to be backstage, you could usually get there. It's just most people didn't think that it was worth a try. Mm-hmm. So uh, once you got to the later, sort of mid to late 80s and things, I don't know, things seemed to be that everybody had an entourage. Every uh, band seemed to have some protectors or others. And I remember that there was a time when Guns N' Roses were trying to make journalists sign pieces of paper contracts to talk to them. Oh. And, you know, and there was, it was things like if you take their picture, they, they own the copyright of the picture. Now, this stuff was unheard of, you know. Journalists think, hey, I've written this piece. I'm doing you a favor, helping you, you know, sell your record. Yeah, you're doing me a favor by talking to me, but that's part of the game, you know. And so it got kind of quite nasty, and also bands got to choose their kind of favorites to talk to. And so for a while, I guess I was one of the people that that guns seemed to speak to a lot, and some of the metal bands, you know. Yeah. Now, 
I want to ask you just a couple of questions before I let you go, Sylvie. Sure. One of the names that comes up as being a very difficult interview, and I, I'm dying to know did you interview him, did you, Richie Blackmore? Oh, yeah, I loved Richie. Oh, I loved Richie. Yeah, I interviewed Richie. He was difficult, but we got on like a house on fire. What, what made him difficult? Was it just he didn't? He thought the questions were dumb, or was he just moody? Or he was, what, was he, what made him difficult? I can't, how do you put a finger on it? You would just know, sometimes when you're sitting in the room with somebody, the way they even sit, the way they look at you, the way they respond to a question, you know this is going to be a tough one. There's a kind of feeling they're giving up off that it's like you're a little speck of dust that's come into the room and they really haven't got any any kind of, you know, any care in the world to talk to you. Yeah. It's just this kind of feeling of, uh, you know, it's just being dismissed. It's very dismissive and fairly, I guess, the kind of arrogance of sorts. But, you know, Richie was difficult in that way. I mean, I don't know if it was arrogance, but we kind of got along. We just got along. We'd done some good interviews. There was one that was in either Bakersfield or somewhere disgusting and horrible in one of those parts of America where they vote for Trump. And, uh, and I know that that time we did this interview and he was really pleased that I had left out one particular thing that had been said. And I did, it didn't bother me. Yeah. We had so many other good things in there. And then I think the next time I probably saw him was when uh, Deep Purple did Perfect Strangers. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. 1984, five, 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 something yeah. like that. Yep. Yeah. So this time I went out to Hamburg to interview them and I was told by the PR that I could speak to John, but not to Richie. Richie wasn't doing any interviews, but then suddenly the PR called back and said, Richie wants to talk to you. Oh, nice. And wants to take you out to dinner. And I thought, well, that's nice. Thank you, Richie. So out I went to dinner with Richie, and uh, I think I got completely shit-faced on <laughs> German wine, even though I don't like German wine. And I only have flashbacks of this, but I remember going with him and a Swedish journalist and John Lord to the Reaper Barn. And we were going to all different places. He took me he took me to a place that he knew the owner of and it was a bar in Berlin where the Beatles had played back in their Berlin days, you know? Mm. When they were sort of just beginning and before they were signed and everything. And the woman there, her daughter used to be one of the the Beatles' girlfriends or Paul McCartney's girlfriend or something. And I do seem to remember you know, in in sort of floods of nostalgic tears over Beatles, hugging this woman, you know, who owned the place, who was also in nostalgic tears about the Beatles. And then the next minute, going to some sort of weird cross-dressing bar, and another guy had left at some point, and there we were at five in the morning, me and the Swedish girl, <laughs> uh, trying to get a taxi back to a hotel where we didn't know where it was, and, and break our way in because they lock hotels in. Yeah, well, that's, that's, they did at that point. That's something you're not going to forget that night. In Hamburg, <laughs> yeah, that was that was the Hamburg story. But I haven't spoken to Richie in a long time now. I, I, I can't say I got off too much on that kind of medieval thing he's doing now. You know, yeah, that sort of like metal folk thing. Yeah, he's doesn't um, really do it for me too much. He's doing rainbow shows again now, but he's got none of the old band. Well, they were just excellent. Rainbow were excellent, and you know, I think we sometimes. You know, some of the journalists, especially the male journalists, kind of give the the guitar heroes a bit of a hard time. You know, I think there there seems to be a little competition going on between them. So maybe he just just felt that things were easier when we spoke. 
Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about a venue in London. It's iconic. Sure. It's been gone for a long time now. The Marquee Club. Oh, the lovely Marquee Club, which is, isn't it, didn't it move again? I mean, at one point, the last time I saw it, it moved to Islington, which was very bizarre. But it's had different sites and venues. I remember the one, best, the best one I remember is the one in Soho with the black walls and where if you touched the wall, you could hardly get your hand off because it was so sticky. <laughs> and the floor was like thick with beer. And I was always one, you know, worrying about the kids who were headbanging because you think their hair would get pulled out when it hit the floor or the wall because, you know, it's so much like glue. Yeah. But the sound was great there and... Oh my lord, that was a wonderful, wonderful venue. Yeah, a lot of that's a, lot a real of... rock venue, you know. And that's the trouble now, you know. So many of them, they try really hard to get a real rock venue, but somehow it used to have had used to have had history. The history's in the walls of the place and in the air and the dust, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of big bands and like arena bands in the, in the U.S. They'd go over to England and they'd play the marquee. Yeah, I'm so I'm sure I saw Aerosmith there. I think Guns and Roses. And they'd be because I thought that I saw. You know, Aussie, you know, sheep shagging at our festival when it was staying on the green. But, you know, yeah. I kind of sometimes tend to conflate one person's show, which was brilliant in a small venue, and put it in the wrong venue. Yeah, yeah. So, Sylvie, last question. Um, sure. The, the, the tapes of the interviews, the cassette tapes, do you still mm -hmm. have them? No, I don't think so. There might be one or two of favorite people, but I don't think so. In the beginning, I remember... A guy from a radio station is asked to borrow some and never gave them back. So I remember that. There are some, actually some CDs, not CDs, some LPs uh, of interviews I did with a lot of the rock bands for a radio program that came out of L.A. called, uh, was called London Wavelengths. Okay. BBC Rock Hour Special. I don't even know if it had anything to do with the BBC, except that Adam Peebles was kind of calling in and doing something from his end, and I was in a studio in LA. So I've got those interviews. But the thing is that those were slightly kind of sanitized because, you know, they wouldn't do live interviews because in America you're not allowed to cuss, you know, cuss on the radio yeah. at all. Yeah. If you said the word shit, you would be in, you know, they would actually close down the station. Yeah. Well, we are a Puritan place out here. And most bands have a colorful term of phrase here and there. So they'd have to cut it or put bleeps in. So, um, yeah, I mean, they wouldn't maybe be the best interviews, but I don't think I've got many of the the early ones that yeah. I ever did. Because, you know, cassette tapes tend to warp over time or yeah. you keep them in a box and then mice eat them, you know. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things of, of mine have been consumed by small animals or bad weather. Yeah, the only reason I'm asking is the last time I spoke to you, um, I asked you about, you know, you, that you'd interviewed Randy Rhodes. And, of course, yeah. you've all these musicians now that passed away. That, you know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. musicians now, iconic musicians that are dying, but, like, Randy Rhodes died and he was like in his early 20s. And I know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, if you had a cassette tape of the interview, you know, there's so many ways you can get these things out now in podcasts yeah. and everything. And I figured I'd ask you to see if you had any of them left. You know, it's really, it's an interesting thing. And it was always a bit of an ethical dilemma for me because I figured, you know, there's, there's two very different things, radio interviews and interviews from magazines. I think that when people know that they're going to be on radio or TV, they protect themselves a little. They kind of take a different stance, whereas they ramble a bit more, knowing you're going to cut things out when it comes to the magazine. And I always felt that if I was going to do anything like that, I would want to go through protocol 
and ask their permission, like usually people would say yes, I guess, you know, it's a historical piece, but they might not, you know, as I say, it's just something, it's a whole different thing when you're just sitting around because you'll stop the interview and chat for a while and, and then you'll turn it off because they're telling you something off the record and, you know, you come out there with a 45 minute or an hour or longer tape and you transcribe it. I have all of my transcripts in full. Oh. You know, everything's on them. They're all written up. Wow. You see, I've often... And those, you know... I used to, you'd buy Kerrang! and you'd get like, you know, it could be a page on a band. And of course, mm-hmm. the, you have your introduction re-paragraph and then you have your conclusion paragraph. And you might have some questions and answers in between. And I often thought, no, they couldn't have only talked to the person for like five minutes. I'd love to actually hear some of the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of it is just chat. And some of it with the magazine like Kerrang, it would be that there would be a function for it. They, at one point, they uh, it's just after I moved back to England, so it must have been the mid-80s, they, um, they came up with the idea of in bed with. And in bed with was like intimate questions with rock stars, you know, like, who was your first girlfriend? When did you first have sex? You know, do you like this? Do you like... It was really fun. You know, it was just a silly Q&A. And uh, I did one with Lemmy, for example, which was really a sweet one, I remember. Anyway, um, so uh, in the beginning, and they did quite a few girls in there. I think girls' school were in, Lisa Falk was in there. And then I guess when it got to them realizing that most of the people were guys, I got quite a lot of work from that. <laughs> so I'd, I'd end up and the worst one of that was Glenn Benton of Deicide oh yeah <laughs> yeah I, and uh, partly because um, Kerrang's photographer would come along and take a pic- large picture with him to run with it would be a four page picture uh, of me like sort of like, and there'd be another little one of me under the sheets with him I mean fully dressed but you know yeah. I'd be under a sheet with him and uh, Glenn Benton said that he wasn't going to uh, do that unless I gave him a blowjob. Wow. <laughs> At which point I fell about on the floor laughing. I just thought this was the stupidest thing I'd learned, you know. I'd been told by my mother never to give a blowjob with somebody with a tattooed upside-down cross burned into their head. head. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of like, nah, I don't think so. I don't think we'd make a good couple. So uh, I kind of declined the offer. And in the end, I think it was Crusher, the designer and artist at Kerrang, drew the most wonderful caricature of full page of Glenn Benson in bed with his, a teddy bear in his arms. And the teddy bear had a little kind of nightcap on. And he had a little nightcap on on his, the end of his upside-down crucifix or something. It was absolutely beautiful work by dear Crusher. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that... Glenn Benton probably refused to talk to Kerrang again after that. Oh, well, I but know. no great loss. No, no great loss at all. <laughs> so, oh, I do have one, one other interview. Oh, yeah. all right. Um, did you ever interview yeah. Steve Clark from Def Leppard? No, I never did. Okay. I had to think about that for a minute. I interviewed Joe. That was the only one I interviewed from Def Leppard. Okay. I went to Dublin to do it. It was my first time in Dublin. Oh, well, I lived in Dublin no, for I 20 didn't, years. Uh, excellent. I went over there and did a show a couple of years ago. Oh, played nice. music. Very good. Yeah, can, you remember, can you remember where in Dublin you played? Well, I went to Whelan's to do one song with Hal Gelb from Giant Sand, who produced and played on my album. Mm. I, I know Whelan's. I know Whelan's well. At Whelan's. And then I went along to this other venue that was like a kind of very fancy kind of old building that was being sort of fixed up. And it looked like some, almost like a, 
you know, government building or meets a palace, you know, one of those old things. And it was a, a little kind of festival that was being held there. Nice. Arts festival. And there I had my own show and how doing a Phil Spector at Live Aid came in a taxi at the end of his set to join me at the end of my set. Okay. So we, we each played in each other's set in the same night. Very good. That was fun. But no, I've only spoken to Joe of, of Def Leppard and actually I went on the road with him once as well. I can't remember that was. I got a feeling that was behind the Iron Curtain. I did one of those with Iron Maiden too. Okay. I think to do a lot of Iron Maiden albums in my time. So. All right. Yeah, I'm seeing Iron Maiden tomorrow night. Oh, are you? Well, if you go back and sort of uh, talk to them, give them my love. Oh, well, I, I, I probably I haven't won't. seen them in many years. Ah, uh, they're still great bands. Does Rod Smallwood still manage them? Oh, yeah. He's been, he's been there since day one. <laughs> oh, you know, Rod Smallwallet, we used to call him. Small wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he didn't buy his drinks very often. Bless his heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the best way to a journalist's heart is to keep him watered. Yeah. And did, of course, I can't let you go without asking about Judas Priest. You must have interviewed those guys. I love Judas Priest. Yeah, many, many, many times. And uh, I used to, oh, yeah, I loved Rob, you know. And uh, I think my most interesting interview with them was in, we were down in the Costa del Sol. That was an interesting one. And they had uh, rented a villa that was next door to Elizabeth Taylor or somebody. I'd have to look up the old interview to find who it was, but it was one of these grand old actresses, and in my memory it was Liz Taylor. And uh, uh, they had a swimming pool, and so I remember swimming with them <laughs> and, uh, you know, going inside and a couple of them were watching sort of the kind of TV shows the girls don't usually watch unless you're their girlfriend and they're into something interesting. But uh, they were kind of off in a room watching something interesting on TV and I'd be sitting on in the pool doing an interview. Alright. There have been many pool interviews in my lifetime too. <laughs> did did you know before Rob came out that and said he was gay, did you have any idea at all? I didn't know actually, but I did ask him in an interview that I did that ran in Cream magazine and I just said to him something like, you know, all that leather, blah blah blah, you know, he did kind of look sort of gay <laughs> and he kind of answered in yeah I do look kind of gay but he didn't actually come out okay. I can't remember the exact words but it was something like that and it was in a cream interview in fact I think they used that one in a book somewhere so I can probably give you his exact words on it if you need that but uh, it was it was interesting give me one second sure I've got the book. I just haven't gotten to the page yet. Let's see if I can find it. It would be, yeah, it was a, it was a sort of like a cream compilation book. So I'm trying to see. Okay. There's a whole lot of uh, different interviews in there. Grace Lick yeah. here. So I interviewed those lots of times too. Kids okay. I knew really well. You know, I saw their famous, you know, uh, Gene Simmons' famous book of, of naked people. Oh, have you seen it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, he showed it to me the first time we did an interview. Wow. And I said, oh, you should see mine and boys. I was just trying to show off. Yeah. But, uh, How did he yeah, come actually, from? the last time I saw Gene, it was really funny. I was interviewing him. I think it was from Mojo, a big Mojo piece. And I went to his house, and he has a kind of kiss museum. Yeah, that's right. There. And I was there, I think, with Paul Elliott, who used to write for Sound and wrote for uh, 
Kerrang, great yeah. guy, Paul. Loved Paul. And he uh, was, I think at that time, doing PR for them. So I got shown around the famous Kiss Museum dash merch hall. And, uh, you know, that was when, uh, as I left, he laid me down like there was this program, TV program in England called Cracker Jack, where when you won, you'd have arms full of gifts, you know, and prizes. And I came out of that like Cracker Jack, and I had to, oh, my Lord, he must have given me about 14 T-shirts and Kiss ketchup, a, a Kiss puke, a Paul pew, you name it. And I uh, went to the airport, and the only thing that they'd let me take on was the T-shirts and the Paul pew. Oh, no. <laughs> so they took away my Kiss ketchup in case I blew anybody up, but I could stab them with my Paul pew, Yeah. I guess. You know. what, what, what do you make of Gene? Do, like, do you like him? Like, is he a, is he a tough nut to crack, do you think? He he can be very difficult. I mean, we've been doing interviews for a long time, so I kind of don't get too wound up by that. The thing about Gene is he's very honest, but the things that he says aren't very rock and roll in the sense that he'll say, I do this for the money. Yeah. And, you know, when, when my family, my mother and I moved from Israel to America, I kissed the ground of America because mm-hmm. this was capitalism. So when I met him, first of all, I didn't recognize him because, I, you know, he didn't have any, any of his makeup on, and I thought he was maybe their manager. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he didn't really look very rock and roll in a way. Yeah. But he's very open about that. But, you know, you go and listen to those early albums and you see him on stage and, damn, were they great. Oh, yeah. You know? Did you interview... Okay, here we are. I'm sorry, here I've got the Judaist Priest. Okay, it was go ahead. in September 1986 when I did this thing. Okay. Oh, right. I said, this is a question. I said, Rob, I asked, this being Rob Holford, frontman, high priest of cow use. We were talking about uses of cows. Are you a gay right-wing biker into SNM? Well chuckled the well-modulated Midland tones. Well, that's pretty much the way we've looked for a number of years, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, it, so he didn't exactly come out, yeah, yeah, he but he did not it. deny it. But he yeah. said, in actual fact, we're changing the image somewhat in this world tour. We've decided to drop all the studs and chains and whips and the S and M things. Mm. So I said, but priest without studs and stuff is like whiskey without alcohol. What is this new image? He said, please don't get the impression we're going to come out looking like Motley Crue. Yeah, in 86. Etc. So in yes, that was it. They came out looking like Mad Max. <laughs> they did. It yeah. was exactly what they did. But so that was it, and you know that was when I almost outed him in 1986. Wow! Evidence. <laughs> one one final guy I have to ask you, being Irish. <laughs> did you ever interview oh, Phil Lynott? Oh yeah, I love Phil. Who wouldn't? I mean, what a great guy. You know, just wonderful, 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 wonderful. And I love that man, the music. Oh, just loved him. Yeah. You know, it was. Hugely, hugely tragic that he won as early as he did. Yeah. Just not right. You know, yeah. that was the world turned upside down. Yeah, so would you have interviewed him for Tin Lizzy or for his solo stuff? Can you remember? I can't, you know, I really don't remember. Yeah. I think it was Tin Lizzy, but I couldn't swear to it. I'd have to look through my files, my, my copious files, and okay. then it would say the year at the top. Do you want me to have a look and see? No, if I can no, find I, it? I'm, I'm okay. here all night talking to you, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's just some people have got perfect recalls. Some people are good at lying, and uh, other people have to look things up. Well, you're the, fir- you're the first person I've talked to in the project that has a file. The rest of them, are, you kind of have to prod them, and then they'll, they'll go off in a tangent, and then they'll remember something and then come back to it, and then 
they oh, they'll remember something else, and but they don't actually have anything written down. It's it's been so long ago, and you have everything. Well, I have all my transcripts, and in the beginning, the early ones were some of them, the earliest ones were handwritten. So when I went to interview um, uh, Johnny um, Winters, albino, yeah, albino as we say, albino as the Americans say, guitar hero, that was actually a handwritten transcript. And then I've got ones that were typewriters, and I've got under copies of articles that were carbon, you know, so yeah. you've got the kind of, you know, you have to kind of scribble over things where you've kind of, on the top page, you've corrected it with white out, little tipex and stuff. Yeah. And so sometimes some of the words are just blodges because all you've got is the carbon copy of all the scrawlings. But yeah, I've got those of everything up until the digital times, and I have just got filing cabinets full of any, all of these funny ever, old yellowed papers. Anybody ever asked, like, to do a book? Because Mick Wall has done a book of old Kerrang stories, and uh, there's other writers have done the same thing. Anyone ever approached you? But everybody's going to do that. You know, I figure they're all out there. People can get them off the net. There is a, a lot of things are on things like Rock's back pages and those, you know, sites of uh, somebody has painstakingly typed everything back in. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, well, maybe one day when I've got nothing better to do with my time, I might try and find my favorite interviews from over the years. But the guys in, um, I'm sure you're aware, the guys in Rock Candy magazine, Howard Johnson and Derek Oliver and those guys, they're kind of trying to get back to the days of Kerrang! with the magazine where they'll run the old features with an updated kind of codas on them and stuff like that. I think, mm-hmm. I think one of your ones actually ran in issue two was on Y&T. Nearly sure oh, it was your name. Really? Yeah. Nobody paid me. <laughs> That's nice thing. So I did do wine tea before, so it would be nice. There's uh, another new magazine coming out right now. That's um, it's sort of like part of the sort of the Kerrang sort of school of things, and uh, and they just asked you as an ACDC interview I did some years ago, where I interviewed, uh, you know, their original singer. Oh, Bon. She's good old Bon. I loved Bon. Yeah. So that was nice. Yeah. It's kind of good when these things get revived. But I guess people see they can find these things mostly online now. So free yeah. somebody's typed them in somewhere. So. Yeah, true. Uh, I guess my favorite to say story on Lemmy. So I kind of got to know him very well. You know, a lot of people in this business will say he was probably one of the nicest guys you can imagine in the music business. And Stefan adored him, you know, he said that he was the most supportive man, you know, encouraged him and yeah. in his sort of work as a young journalist. And he and I used to hang out sometimes and just you know, in a totally unromantic way, just buddies, you know. Yeah. And have these really great long conversations and stuff. And I remember one year when I was living in Laurel Canyon, and I was Laura Canyon of course, mm-hmm. uh Lars had come over to my house, Lars and Metallica. He had a friend called Heavy Metal John, John Cornerins or Cornarins. John was really nice, this kid from L.A., you know, from probably one of the nicest suburbs of L.A., but he adored metal, and he went to all of the shows. And I remember I was doing a piece for sound where they wanted me to kind of name all of the best of the, like, little upcoming metal bands like Serious Angle, and the ones that never really kind of made huge names for themselves, but were doing well. And so John was like my partner in crime in that. And he'd go into some little place because he went to metal all the time. And he'd call up and say, have you got this person on your list? And he'd come around and I'd give him like some of the 
you know, the sort of, I'd be sent so many albums and, and photos and stuff. And he was always very modest and never really asked for much. So I gave him things. And one day he turned up with his friend Lars, who was like half of John's height. Oh. And at that time, it only just started Metallica. I don't believe it even had a name at that point, that band. Yeah. And uh, he came over and I remember he was digging through my drawers and my bins and everything, pulling out all the photos that I was throwing out, and even the ones I wasn't. Can I have this? Can I have this? <laughs> and he was nuts about Diamond Head and Iron Maiden. Those yeah. were the two that he was just just creaming over. And so I, I remember he saw a Christmas card I'd been sent by Iron Maiden. It had one of the Eddie pictures on, I guess, a lot of other journalists got those. And I think he managed to get talk me out of that too. He never stole anything. He always, you know, talked you into it, into taking something. Yeah. And then one time, I know he wanted tickets to uh, to see, or he wanted to go and see Lemmy. He was desperate to see Motorhead. Anything with head in the name he liked, you know, Diamond Head Motorhead. Yeah. <laughs> and so I couldn't go. And this was down at the Long Beach Arena. I had to go off somewhere else and do something. I can't remember now. It was certainly an assignment. Otherwise, I'd have definitely been down there. I remember being mad. I couldn't go. So one of my friends took my ticket and passes, and I said, you know, this is backstage pass, and Lars wants to meet Lemmy, and, you know, I've told him up front this is going to happen. Lemmy's expecting it. So she, uh, unfortunately, my friend left Lars backstage with Lemmy <laughs> and didn't supervise him. And uh, I get a call, I think it's a couple of days later, from Lemmy with that deep, croaky voice he had, you know. It's like, Simmons, you're in trouble. Like, Uh-oh. So that kid, that kid you sent backstage. Yeah, well, I kind of, I gave him some drinks. Apparently it was screwdrivers. I think that was his drink of choice at that time. And he threw up in my boots. <laughs> I said, which ones? Not the white cowboy boots, he said, yeah. <laughs> I said, can they be cleaned? He said, nope. <laughs> Oh. But it was funny. So he, he threw up in Lenny's, Lemmy's boots, and that's true fandom, you know. Yeah. And he was so excited by meeting Lemmy. And Metallica were always good to Lemmy after that. Sylvia, you I, know, they became such stars. I, I thought you were going to say that Lar- Lemmy called and said Lars is still talking. <laughs> well, that could be the case. Having spoken <laughs> to Lars last year for a Mojo interview, I was delighted to see that he is every bit of you know, as chatty and talkative and opinionated and yeah. as ever. I mean, love, loved music, yeah, and tennis and all sorts of other things, but he was all about music and he was such a fan of music himself. And did they, got did, a big spot in my heart for him too. Did you end up going to those Fillmore shows they had a few years ago? Yes, I went to only one of them though. Okay. You mean the ones that they kind of charged them like about 10 cents to get in? Yeah. Yeah, I went to one, and mostly them. It was fantastic. It was, you know, people were almost crying. It was so emotional. You know, it was really good, and I, I ran into lots of people I knew in the business who'd kind of, you know, booked them at early shows and stuff. And so they were being good to everybody. They were the ones that had been with them, their early fans, and the people in the business who'd been behind them. They were very open to having them there and very, very generous. That was. And so I remember that going, and I think my. I think I reviewed it for something, probably okay. for Mojo. Mm-hmm. But I do remember at one point that he uh, he had uh, said, I think it was at one point, that if uh, that he asked the, the group, the, the audience rather, what they thought about the album that he did with Lou Reed, you know, <laughs> they did one of the songs from it. And he said something like, it, you know, if you don't behave yourself, we'll play, play the whole album. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just a kind thing. So that was uh, that was sweet, but it was so natural, and I can't even remember who the guest was. Yeah. I have some feeling it was robbers of Iron Maiden, uh, no, of uh, Judas Priest, I may be going crazy. Uh, yeah, I think Halford was there one night. All right. I know Jason Newstead played a, a couple of nights, and Mustaine played one night, I think. Yeah, I think I think it was, since it came to my head that it was Rob Halford, that would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? But, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. And the one night Marianne Faithful was with him as well. Yeah, they did. Um, was it The Memory Remains, one of the songs? Yeah, I, I wasn't at that show, so I got tickets to one of them. I think it was a case of I was on assignment somewhere else and could probably have snuck into probably more, but, mm. you know, it was pretty amazing. And as it was when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Metallica, and yet again, they remembered all the people who'd been on their side. I was flown out. Xavier was flown out from England. Um, other friends were there as the Music for Nations, the label that they were released on in the UK. Yep. Their guys came out. Jim, who, as far as I know, ran the label, at least it seemed to. Maybe he didn't, but he was the one I was always in contact with. Yeah. Another nice guy, Jen. Mm-hmm. And, and we were all there. they pay for us to go out paid for the hotels, we went to the parties and uh you know, they're you know, they're good guys. They're, Fantastic. You know, they they haven't been spoiled by fame. Yeah, that that was one of the uh, that when when they did that for the Hall of Fame and they did the Fillmore thing, that blew me away because a lot of people would see a stadium band like that and, you know, ah, they're not gonna remember all the people from the past and when they actually did that it was like you can't really say anything bad about them now. Like, look what they're doing. Like, this is an amazing thing. They don't have to mm. do it. No, they don't have to do it. And I think that, you know, they've they've got their heads screwed on the right way. And love has always been a chatterbox. They've also been very honest. Yeah. Get, at least in my, you know, recollection, you always get an honest answer, even to the most difficult questions. Yeah. And he'll, he'll yeah. go in there and he'll, he'll you know, talk you through it. Yeah. And then, you know, I say, even though at the beginning I was not a huge fan because it was, it was, you know, I wasn't so much into the kind of thrash stuff. I was like, I just, I knew they were good, but I didn't, you know, sit down and put on the telegrams. I think my favorite show of theirs, besides the film, or was they played at Neil Young's Bridge School concert about maybe four years ago, mm. five years ago, and I went to that and, how great to see them unplugged, you know, Metallica yeah. unplugged. Yeah. on stage and it kind of lets you see some of the intricacy of the music that they play as well yeah yeah fantastic when it's not amplified but yeah. I prefer it you know a good metal concert yeah so Sylvia I'll probably talked to you longer this time than I did the last time <laughs> I'm more awake time, yeah. so not such so, a bad thing I'll, I'll leave you go back and uh, play your music and listen to your albums alright review my albums yeah. ok well really nice talking to you and thanks a lot alright thanks for talking take to me take care of yourself okay, bye, bye. alright there you go Richie's second chat with the one the only Sylvie Simmons awesome guest and uh, probably one of the highlights of our Kerrang project so far just so many great stories and as I said before we probably could just sit with her for hours and talk and talk and just I don't know. She's like a fountain of awesome stories from all those classic Kerrang! years. So once again, big thanks to Sylvie for coming on the show. And as I mentioned last time she was on, you can head over to sylviesimmons.com and find out what she's up to. She's got her blog.
blog up there. Tour days if you want to see her going out and doing some book reading and a little bit of music and stuff. So definitely if you want more, Sylvie, that is the place to go. And of course, she's always writing. She's been, uh, you know, part of books as well as doing a lot of writing for Mojo. And for those of you that remember Sylvie from uh, back in the day writing for Cream Magazine, you know, she talked about the Halford quote from that Cream book. I actually have that book myself. Great book. I used to read Cream Magazine every time I get a chance. And uh, definitely that book brought back a lot of memories about all the classic Cream features that they used to have. So a good stuff, a compilation of all kinds of great cream stuff, old stories and things, and uh, awesome book. But anyways, that is a wrap for Kerrang! episode number seven. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. It's over. Go home.